chapter 1, would you read with me, please? Start with verse 18. It says, Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though it, they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her. But now murderers, your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water, your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares... Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lye, and I will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges at the first, as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away, or as a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall burn together, and they, there will be none to quench them. Israel, you're in trouble. This is a nation that's in crisis. They're surrounded. The enemy's eating everything they've got. They're going through sieges where they literally have to eat their own children. They have sinned and rebelled against God, and God has tried to discipline and change them. But they think it's okay. Hey, they're going to church. They're doing everything God told them to do, and They've got a weapon that God gave them. Solomon told them, if you ever get in trouble, all you got to do is, we looked at it last week, pray. And if there's a national crisis, all you've got to do is you've got to go to the temple, lift up your hands, and pray. And he gave you six, seven different examples of where different national crises, if you do this, I will forgive your sins and I will heal your land. But he tells them, oh no, even though you pray to me multiple prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Now, if you want to know what the answer is to solving that problem so that God will answer your prayers, Israel, Here's the answer, verse 16. Now, I used to look at this, and I read this over and over and over again, and I kept thinking there's a checklist here. Check this, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove this, cease to do evil, learn to do good. I thought it was just a checklist. It's not a checklist. There's an organization here, and it's an answer to the question, how do you get God to answer your prayers? Remember, your hands are filled with blood. That's the reason I'm not answering your prayers. Here's the answer. 
Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Israel, if you want to get out of the siege, you want to be fed, you want to be healed, if you want to do what's right, God will forgive you, but this is what you've got to do. Wash yourselves. Now, I don't know what your, your translation, I'm looking at a New American Standard here. There is no connective article in the Hebrew here. The New American Standard gets it right here. Notice it says, wash yourselves. There is no and, but, anything. It just says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. The Hebrew is doing something here. First thing it says is wash. 73 times in the Old Testament, 52 times it refers to ceremonial cleansing. Make yourself clean. The next one is purity before God. So what he's saying is wash yourselves and be pure before God. Now, Isaiah wrote both these words next to each other because when you make one statement, you don't connect it. You just say something next to it. What he's doing is with the second phrase, he's qualifying or explaining what he said the first time. So what he's saying is wash yourselves. If you want to know what wash yourselves means, it says make yourselves clean. Then it says remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Now hang on a second here. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 5? Do you remember what we looked at here a couple weeks ago? Remember it says, let me read it to you. It says, husbands, love your wives as God gave, as Christ gave himself up for her so that he might, listen to this, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word. Do you remember that? Where did Paul get that? Paul was a huge Old Testament guy. Paul, in fact, Jesus was the same way. If he wanted to make a point, what did he do? He quoted the Old Testament. Most of the principles of the New Testament that Paul talked about, he got from the Old Testament. He'd be arguing something, yet you couldn't understand. And if he's arguing something, sometimes he would just quote the Old Testament. You know what? The argument ended right there. It was his authority. I'm not going to have to explain it. That's what the Old Testament says. That's all I need to know. His source of what he believed and what he taught was the Old Testament. Now, i got a question for you. Did he get Ephesians 5, 25 from this? Where do I get that? Remember, who's he talking to? God is talking to his, he's talking to his bride, okay? Remember it says, and he gave himself up and he washed her with the word. That's exactly what this is saying right here. Wash yourselves with the word. Listen to this. The second part of the verse is saying that you need what you need to do to get rid of the evil of your deeds. Notice that it says, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Now, your deeds will stop. The evil of it remains. So this is what you do. Cease to do evil. Divide this into three parts. First thing you do is you stop doing what you're doing. You stop sinning. The next thing you do, second thing, learn to do good. Verse 17, the third thing is here's the examples of what you do when you decide to do what's right. What do you do what's right? You obey the law, the word of God that he gave you. Every one of those is, New Te is Old Testament Mosaic law. They're all there. So three parts. 
cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. Justice is a word that means to come to a decision that you are determined to do what is right. Now stop a second. Those three things is a good definition of what word? Stop, turn around, go this way, and decide I'm going to do what God tells me to do. I'm going to obey his word. What's that a good definition of? Repentance. Look at verse 27. Zion will be redeemed with justice. Remember it says, seek justice in verse 17. And then it says, and her what? My translation says her repentant ones. What is this a definition of? Repent. So what is the answer if I want God to answer my prayers, and I'm talking to the uh, Isaiah 1 Jew, and I've got blood on my hands, what do I do? Wife, repent. And use the word of God. Do what God tells me to do. That's the answer. Israel, as bad as it is, I will forgive you if you repent and do what I told you to do in the Mosaic Law. I will wash you with the word of God. Okay? Now, it says, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Now, when I got to this point, and for a long time I was writing my lessons ahead, I thought when I get to this point... I'm going to spend a lot of time just talking about Luke and the adoption of things that we went through because Marilyn and I, for I don't know how many years now, we've done foster care. This, what's in here, is in the Word of God. The Word of God tells us to take care of the orphan, and it's everywhere. Uh, James tells us, in fact, I was reading James 1.27, and it was this verse that led me to start doing foster care. It says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this. If I want to have a true religion, what do I do? I visit the orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. I thought I was going to sit here and tell you about Luke. We have uh, uh, almost five years now we've had him. Marilyn called me up one day, and she says, do you want to take care of a meth baby? And I go, what's a meth baby? She says, he's addicted to meth. He's just been born. And I go, what does meth do to a baby? I says, I don't know. I guess, but you know what? Let's find out. And because we said yes, that boy has been an adventure and a challenge and a great blessing. I'm glad we did it. But it was this verse that led us to that. Now, it hasn't been easy. There's been issues and sometimes it's a hassle. You know, sometimes we have the best conversations. We were running along out in, the, uh, out in the country here just a few days ago, and we hadn't eaten. We were just out exploring, and uh, we'd drive by this truck stop, and I says, you know what, guys, you want to eat at a greasy spoon? And he goes, no, Dad, I want a clean spoon. <laughs> so, so... You know what, sometimes I have the better conversations with him than other people. I just, he's, sometimes he's just fun, and we enjoy it. But as I got into this, you know what, this is not about if I want to be a real Christian, then I need to go foster care. Now, I'm not saying, I do believe that God convicted me and God led us that direction, and I do believe there is something in that. But 
That is not, as I got into this, that is not what God is talking about here. There's a couple things to get the context of what he's doing here. Jesus said, he quoted a a verse, and remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about uh, this book is about to get prophetic, and we've already talked about that in when it talked about the remnant. Remember we talked about that earlier? He's going to talk about that again in chapter 6. He said there's going to be a tenth left, and there's going to be the Holy Seed. And then in chapter 10, he takes that idea of the remnant, and he goes to the end of human history. And that's what he's talking about. This book is going to get real prophetic in chapter 2. It's going to talk about Jerusalem in the future days. And in a few verses, he's going to say, I'm going to change Israel, and someday it's going to be what it's supposed to be. So it's prophetic. Something else here, too. We're going to hell here in a few verses, okay? What determines whether you're going to be part of that new city or whether you're going to go to hell? What is it? Jesus Christ. Where has that thought come into your mind before? And I realize he's doing the same thing that Jesus did in Matthew 25. Let me show you something. Would you turn to Matthew 25? I want to show you something. If you're standing before Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is about to determine whether you go this way or that way, what is the question that he's going to ask you? Is he going to ask you, did you come before me and bow at this altar and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, and please come into my heart and... Is that going to be the question? If you were going to ask somebody the question, why should I take you into heaven, what is the right question? Look at Matthew 25, and what's going on here? Let me set this up. This is the end of the Gentile program and the beginning of a restored Israel program. That's another thing that's going on here that made me think about this. God is about ready to shut down the Israeli economy, okay? He's going to take them out of the way. Ezekiel says the Shekinah glory will leave. It won't be long, and all of Israel is going to be gone, captive to foreign countries. God is shutting these people down. God's character comes into question then. Didn't you make a bunch of promises to Israel? What's going on here? Remember, that is what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 1. God's character is online because of what he's about to do to Israel. Now, when you come to Matthew chapter 24 and 25, there are some promises that the disciples know about looking at the Old Testament. And Jesus has just said some things. He's made this declaration about the temple about to be destroyed, and things start clicking in their mind. And so he asked Jesus, they asked, the disciples asked Jesus a question. When is the perusia? The Perusia means when is the fullness of your coming? He's already there, so they're not asking when he's coming back. The second coming isn't in their minds, but they want to know when are you fully going to restore the kingdom like you promised, like we know it's going to happen. They ask him three questions in Matthew 24 and 25. He answers those questions in the Olivet Discourse, okay? Now, 
What's happening in Matthew 24 and 25 is the Israel program has started up again. Okay? And that's another reason when I got into chapter 1, I realized he's plugging things together here. I hope I can, I hope I can show you so you can see this. As he starts the program, we're gone. The church age ends, okay? The Israeli program starts. How does he start it? He leads 144,000 Jews, evangelists, to win and to start the program, to bring people to Jesus Christ. They're good. They're devoted to Christ, and they win many, many to Christ. But halfway through this seven Jewish years, not our years, Jewish years, something happens. Jesus calls it the Great Tribulation. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. This earth will be horrific. Jesus says you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to be bad like it's never been bad on this earth before. It's going to be hard even to survive. But when that happens and Jesus Christ comes back, those who did survive are the ones that are going to go in and start the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now, only the saved will go in. Jesus will start with only the redeemed and only the perfect will go into the kingdom. No lost person will start the kingdom of God. What will determine when Jesus Christ comes back, what will determine who goes into the kingdom and who goes somewhere else? Listen to this. What is the question? Look at this. Matthew chapter 25. Start reading at verse 31. It says, And when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Notice, He comes as the Son of Man, but He changes. In the next couple of verses, look what He changes into. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left, then the king, that is something that Jesus was hesitant to say all during his ministry on earth. He avoided that question, but now he finally is the king. And he will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, and here's the question. Here's the determining factor. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did you see... We see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked, or clothe you. When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say, also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? 
Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did that to one of the least of these, you did it not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It says he will separate them one from another. <clears throat> Only the truly saved will enter the kingdom. The sheep are on the right the goats are on the left. You know that when shepherds put sheep and goats together, they can't sleep together. They don't interact very well. The goats are aggressive, and they don't do what they're told. Sheep, on the other hand, are tame. They're obedient. They're docile. And so when it comes time to eat or come time to sleep, shepherds have to separate them. They don't get along. That's what's going on here. The sheep on the right hand of the throne of Jesus Christ will go into the kingdom. Goats go into eternal flame with the devil and the angels. Now, who stands between them? What stands between the two? The king, Jesus Christ. What determines where they stand? It is not what they said. Words are not the issue. It is what they did. They may have called upon the Lord for salvation. They may have said that Jesus was their master. But that's not the issue. Jesus isn't asking what he says. Jesus says, what did you do? It's not what you did in your religion. It's not baptism. It's not communion or tithing. It is only, listen, it's only the common, common actions which were examined. It's only the little things that you did. Now, did I just contradict myself? Because a couple weeks ago, we looked at Matthew chapter 7, and what did we say? Many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, and what did we say? Didn't I do these great miracles for you? Didn't I preach? Didn't I do? And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Did, so is, that a, is there a contradiction going on here? Am I, did we just say that you need to work for salvation? Is that what we just said? Hang on a second. I want you to look at verse 34. It says, The king will say to those on his right, Come you all who are, what? What's the word? They're blessed. Uh, my father, what's the next word? Inherit. The kingdom, what's the next word? Prepare to you from what? The foundation of the world. Remember what we said at the very beginning, Ephesians chapter 1. Who are those who are going to go into the kingdom? Those who have been predestined, they have been adopted, they have been redeemed, and they have an adoption. All those things here, this he is talking to are the ones who are already saved, but what? They showed who they were by what they did. This is not works for salvation. This is a verification of what you already are. This is what a real Christian does. Now, I've got a question for you. What is the difference? What is the difference between Matthew chapter 7 and what we just said? What was the things that he said in Matthew chapter 7? If I prophesy in your name, if I cast out demons... If I perform many miracles, 
Every one of those has a common characteristic. What is it? If I did those things, every one of them would what? It would draw an audience, right? Now, in this case, the deeds that this Christian does that determines whether he goes into the kingdom or not, do they draw an audience? If I go up and feed a hungry person, if I give him a drink of water, if I visit him in prison, if I take some clothes to him because he doesn't have enough clothes, enough money to clothe himself, all those things, are those things going to draw attention? What's the difference? The difference is I don't do it for attraction. I do it because I love that person. Now, there's something else, too. Who is it? Who is it that this Christian loves? Look what he says. He identifies it. Look at verse 40. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of those, what's the word? Brothers of mine. Even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, Jesus Christ identifies with believers. He calls them brothers. Who is it that Christians are taking care of when they have a need? Who is it? Other Christians. How do you treat your fellow Christians? 1 John says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if what? You love one another. The definition of love is, do I care about somebody more than I care about myself? If you are a real Christian, you love and take care of your brethren. Romans chapter 2. I won't read it to you, but compare two things. The Christian perseveres in doing good, and what does the lost person do? He is selfishly ambitious. Selfishly ambitious goes into, we talked about the word means pressure, as describing hell. Glory to the one who does not live for himself, but he perseveres in doing good and good to others. Okay, The difference between a lost person and a saved person. Now listen, when we come to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, what's the point? We're talking to a lost Jew. You have no heart for the Messiah, and it shows in the way you treat his children. Now, verse 18, mercy is offered, but mercy rejected brings wrath. Remember I said that that word uh, reason means debate or argue? Now, what's the argument here? What are they arguing about? If you look, and remember, who's the audience? Who's listening? All of creation is listening. All of creation is watching what God is doing to his people, his covenant people. So they're watching, they're listening, and there's this debate going on, and they've just defended themselves. Now, what's the question? What's the debate? You know what's being debated by what is said in the rest of verse 18, and when it says, though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Why does he have to give that answer? Because an argument has just been brought up. What is the argument? Uh, God, didn't you say you were just? Didn't you say you were righteous? Aren't you holy? Aren't you perfect? Uh, are you really going to forgive that? How? How? 
How can a just God forgive? Uh, remember what they were doing? Their hands are full of blood, blood guiltness. They're literally killing each other. They're eating their own babies. They're sacrificing their kids to demons. Uh, it's as bad as you can get, okay? And God has done everything, everything he can to what? To change their behavior. And what? They're continually to rebel against God. They despise God. God, are you really going to forgive that? The answer is, come now, let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet. He uses the word scarlet, and what he says there is, though your sins are as scarlet as snow, they shall be white. This is God promises to those who obey, like he asked them to do in verses 16 to 17. Red is the color of unjustly shed blood. It is the blood of violence. It is a bright red. The Arabic, the Arabic word for this means to shine. It means that the blood in their hands was glowing. It was shining. It's so obvious. Very appropriate to describe their, their sins. The color came from the eggs of an insect on the leaves of oaks in the Mediterranean area. What they would do is they take this insect turn it into this color, and then they would dye, and then they would double dye a piece of cloth. It would mean to make the color of that cloth permanent. That's what he's doing to describe their sins. Their sins are permanently shining. It is a picture of someone who has sinned, and the sins have permanently stained him or her, and you cannot remove the stain. But how can God do that? That's the question. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Psalm 22 says that he became a worm. Do you know what that word worm means? The word means red. It's a red worm, something that they crushed and used for a dye. He became a red worm, and because of that, he can make white the wool. Now he repeats it for emphasis. He says, though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Though they are crimson, as wool they shall be. Crimson is a red tinge with blue. So if you take blue and red together, what is it? It turns it kind of into a purple. It was usually used to dye wool and was used in the temple construction and the high priest clothes. Even though your wool has been dyed, it will be undyed is what he's saying. Though your sins have a deep stain on them, it will be as though they have never been stained. So what is he saying here? He's saying, even if the nation's sin are as the deepest red, they can be changed. Yes, God will forgive their sin. They will be like wool. Then what he does is he repeats the Mosaic Covenant and look at what he says. There's an interesting play on words here. Look at verse 19. How can he do that? He says, I can do it, and I will do it if what? If you consent and obey. Now, notice there's two words here. You will eat the best of the land if you do that, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be, you see that word? My word is devoured. It is the exact same word as the word eat in the Hebrew. So you can either eat, 
or you can be eaten, is what he says. And all it is, is he's quoting again the promise that he gave him in Deuteronomy 28. I will fulfill my covenant. I will do what I said I will do. Verse 21. It says, how the faithful city has become a harlot. She was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Faithful city, she once was a faithful wife. I think what he's talking about here is the time when Israel and uh, was under the control of David before they were split. I think that he's referring back to a time you once were faithful during that time. Now, though, she is a harlot. The word harlot is a, later on in the Bible, he's going to say this repeatedly through Isaiah, it is a symbol of idolatry. Instead of worshiping God alone, they were worshiping other gods, and he sees that as harlotry. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her. That word lodge means to spend the night. Now, here's the interesting thing. But now, instead of righteousness, something else is going on. You see that word, but now murderers? That word murderers means, we would say, a gun for hire. This city now is full of, if you want to knock somebody off, you want to kill them, there's plenty of people out there. Walk next door, knock on the door, here, give them some money, and they'll kill somebody for you. That's what's going on in this city. Now, there's a lesson to learn here. You remove the law. You remove the restraints of God in any law. What have you got? You've got this. This is what a city and this is what a people will become if you take off all the restraints. And listen, the world wants that. Read Psalm 2. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their courts for us. Let's get rid of the police. Let's get rid of the law. Let's get rid of everything. What have you got? This. That's what's going on here. Adultery to adulterate. That's what's going on here. Uh, something changes. Something is about to change. An issue starts coming into play. Two issues are starting to come into play. The book is starting to change here. Leadership now becomes an issue. Not only is Jerusalem supposed to be a, uh, a leading influence in the whole world, we're going to see that right off the bat in chapter 2, but the people in it is what he's talking about, Israel. They're supposed to be full of leaders who bring people to righteousness. But that is not what's happening here. It says, your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. <clears throat> silver is uh, uh, a, a valuable metal. And what would happen to get pure silver is you would heat it, it would start to melt the elements that you want to get rid of called dross, and then the pure, and you would separate them and just get rid of the bad stuff. Instead of getting the good stuff, they were becoming the bad stuff. All the elements that weren't worth anything. Water, he's saying the same thing. The wine actually in the Hebrew means the good stuff. But instead of being the good stuff, you're so diluted with water the word means diluted, means to make weak. You're not even wine anymore is what it's saying. What is he talking about? What is the silver in the drink? 23 explains verse 22. <clears throat> Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. What's happening here is... For instance, a woman would bring a quarrel or a court case before them, and what he's saying here is it would never go to court. It was always settled out of court because somebody with money would come along 
and they'd pay the judge off. And it was saying that all the leaders and all the judges, you notice it says all of them, <clears throat> they're all that way. They don't care about doing right. They don't care if she's got a, a just case. They don't care if she's being abused. Give me the money. I'll rule in your favor. That's what's going on here. They're thieves. <clears throat> the word there means professional or habitual thieves. Loves. What do they love? They don't love God. They love their sin more than God. Why do men go to hell? John 3.19 says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light for what? Their deeds were what? They were evil. Now, i got five minutes to finish. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me end with this thought. Things change from here on. What happens here is the argument's over. Time for talking. No more. We've talked. We've done everything we could. So what's, what happens now? <coughs> he says, I will be relieved of my enemies, my foes. I looked at that the first time I read it. Who's the enemy? Who's the foe? It's God's people. <coughs> God's privileged people. Praise. His chosen ones are now what? They're now his enemies. I made a statement here last week. I said, <clears throat> God doesn't hate. And I showed you the example. He doesn't hate the sinners like they hate him. It's personal. They hate, he hates their sin. But something changes. What is it? At the very end, it says the spark. What's happening here is somebody goes and they set the city on fire. And God says, let it burn. And let the people in it burn too. Why? Because they have rebelled against me. I've done everything that could be done. I've argued with them. I've pleaded with them. And now it's going to burn. There's a, a, a verse in there, a phrase, and it says, and they will become like a garden with no water. It's something interesting to me when I saw that. I asked my, uh, my dad one time, I says, what was the hardest thing in Vietnam? My dad came away with four bronze stars. He was uh, an infantryman. He fought, actually fought on the ground. Three tours in Vietnam. Lost most of the guys that went over. The first time I saw him go over, he got in the jeep with four guys. A year later, he was the only one that came back. He doesn't talk about it much. Said, but I knew it was hard. I knew it was tough. And so I asked him, I said, uh, what was the hardest thing? He says, sometimes I was, and his answer really surprised me. He says, sometimes I was so thirsty. Now I want you to think about that. What did the rich man say to Abraham? He says, would you come and do what? Would you have him dip his finger in water and have him cool my tongue for I'm in torment? What was the one thing he wanted? He wanted water. Jesus on the cross is going through excruciating and horrible agony. He only said of the seven things that he said on the cross, what was the one thing he said physically that he wanted? I thirst. There is something going on here. If you want to know, and God wants to picture to you how horrible it is, he says, you're going to be thirsty. 
You realize that there's no water in hell? Not one drop of liquid. Listen, the world will tell you to go to hell. Can I tell you something, friend? Don't go to hell. Go to heaven. You don't want to go to hell. It is a place of eternal fire. But it is a place for rebels. Those who absolutely, utterly reject everything that God did for them. You go there, not because God wants you to go there, but because you rejected every effort He made to try to get you not to go there. He sent His Son to die for you. Jesus Christ paid the price of hell so that you wouldn't have to. If you go to hell, you chose to pay the price for yourself instead of letting Jesus Christ pay it for you. My friend, don't do what Israel did. Don't reject the Holy One. He loves you. Let's go to heaven. Seriously, let's go to heaven.